Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we worship you, the one and only true God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have manifested yourself, revealed yourself by Christ, your Son, and also by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We ask you, Lord, that we would have a better comprehension, a better understanding of the one true and living God. Grant your presence with us that your Spirit will show us as revealed in your holy and righteous word what is the true nature of our God, both who he is and what he has accomplished for us. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, in John chapter 14, we've come to a section where Christ has to rebuke and confront Philip and his question about showing the Father or his uh, request to have the Father shown to him. We will see in a few moments what exactly is happening in this passage in terms of what Philip should have known already and what has been known to be the case from the times of the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis onward. We'll also see that though he confronts Philip in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father? He's confronting him in the sense of growing from lesser faith to greater faith. And also that Christ has demonstrated amply that in words and works, verses 10 and 11, in words and works, He has on the earth demonstrated who he is and what they should believe for their salvation and even how to know God, how to know God the Father. He has sufficiently explained by words and works what they should know, what they should believe in order to know God the Father. This is a summary of what what we find in John 14, 8 to 11. But we must back up and ask why this is such an important subject. The subject or the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. We have to ask, well, firstly, if we believe that the greatest commandment, as our Lord taught, Mark 12, 28 to 34, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might, If that is the greatest commandment, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, don't we need to know who the Lord is? Should we not know who we're supposed to love? Because everybody says Lord, everybody says they believe in the Lord, a Lord, whether within the Christian faith or outside the Christian faith, everybody says that, except the most staunchest of atheists, right? And agnostics. Still, many people, most people in the world, on the globe, they worship the Lord in some sense. So, who are we to love? We should ask that question. And having said that, there are religions that confuse the matter. Some religions, like the Jewish religion and Islamic religion, they say to us Christians... Whenever they're trying to curry our favor, they'll say, Oh, no, Christian, we worship the same God. We believe there's only one God, just like you believe there's only one God. We worship the same God. Muslims and Jews will say that when they're trying to gain our favor. They will say that. When they have the dominance and the power, then they are very happy to criticize and condemn us and say we worship a different God. But when they're trying to curry our favor, they'll say we worship the same God. But it's not true. 
that we worship the same God. Is it true or is it not true? It's not true that we worship the same God because categorically, both Jews and Muslims, they deny the Trinity. They condemn and mock our belief in the Trinity. So we don't worship the same God. Also, if we were to consult Hindus and Buddhists and other pagans, idolatrous people, they would say, no, no, Christian, we do worship the same God. They also do the same. When they are trying to curry our favor, they'll say, we worship the same God because ultimately we believe there is one supreme God. We Hindus, we believe there's only one ultimate supreme God. We Buddhists believe there's only one ultimate supreme God. But we just believe that he has many, many numerous, innumerable manifestations. So we worship these idols because they are manifestations, some attribute of the one creator, the one God. We worship these other gods because of that. However, that will not work either. It will not work that way either because of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the first four of the Ten Commandments teach us how to love the Lord. Right? It doesn't work for that reason. Also, within Christianity, there are people who say they love the Lord, they love the Lord Jesus, they believe in Jesus Christ. They say that. Many people within Christianity say so, but if you ask them, or if you read their statements of belief, their statements of faith, their doctrinal statements, if you read them, what they say about God or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit, what they say about what they actually believe, supposedly from the Bible, does not even match the Bible. So they don't believe in the true Lord, and therefore they can't use the name of the Lord. And remember, we just said, it contradicts the Ten Commandments. All of these problems or all of these scenarios contradict the Ten Commandments Because if we're properly going to love the Lord, we will follow the first four commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. Besides me, there should be no other God in your life. So who is that God who says, you shall have no other gods besides me? We have to answer that question. Who is he? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? We have to identify him correctly. And that is biblically. Next, when religions say that, oh, we worship these idols and these are just attributes and representations of the one true God that you and I also believe. That doesn't work because of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not worship them nor bow down to them. You shall not... Worship idols. Don't make an idol and don't worship an idol. So if they claim to follow the true God, well, the true God said don't worship an idol. Don't make it and don't worship it. It doesn't work. And then the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We, we should not take his name in vain. We should mean what we mean, seriously, sincerely, truthfully, mean what we say when we take up his name. Taking it up in vain has many, many manifestations. So, if someone of a false religion claiming to be in the Christian religion or outside of the Christian religion, in a false religion, they use the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, they use the name of the Lord, they do so, if they're not using it correctly, meaning it correctly, meaning it biblically, then they are using or taking up his name in vain. It's worthless. Also, the fourth commandment, which teaches us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When Christians worship the Lord, when they worship the Lord, don't we need to worship the true Lord for that worship to be acceptable? Don't we need to, so we need to know who the true Lord is for the worship that we conduct whenever we gather In the name of the Lord, that worship will only be acceptable if we're worshiping the true God. That means that the many people who don't have a true conception, a true understanding of God, who God is, and believe in that, 
they're not worshiping Him. Truly, they're not worshiping Him for their benefit, but it's in vain. It's empty worship. It's not true worship. That's how important this subject is. If you have the wrong God, you have the wrong religion. If you don't have the God of Holy Scripture, you have a false God. In your mind, in your heart, in your practical worship, in your daily life, you're worshiping and following an idol, a vain God, a false God, a God that exists in your mind, but not in reality. And people who do that that are insane. Insane people live according to what's in their head, not according to what is harmonizing with reality. We can't be insane. We must worship the true God. Having made those points, some more points to make, preliminary introductory points. In terms of what the Bible does not teach and how significant it is. There are some people who deny the doctrine or belief in the Trinity because they say the word does not occur in the Bible. However, the concept is in the Bible. So if the concept, the truth is in the Bible, it doesn't matter necessarily if the word is in the Bible. Because the people of these other religions, even cults within Christianity, they use words that are not found in the Bible. So if they tell us we shouldn't believe in the Trinity because the word's not in the Bible, we should tell them, sir, you use words that are not found in the Bible, so you can't use that argument because I can use it against you and say your religion is a false religion because you use many words to describe your faith and practice that are not in the Bible. Number two, another misunderstanding is that Christians believe in three gods. Christians believe in three gods. The Father is a God, a separate God. The Son is a God, a separate God. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a God, a separate God. They think we believe in tritheism, the belief in the worship of three gods. There are people who criticize and condemn the Trinity and say, this very thing, that we worship three gods. However, that's not true either. The scripture, and we'll see so in a, in, a, in a few moments, the scriptures teach that there is only one God. And that's what we believe, that there is only one God. And we can logically, we can rationally, we can defend Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God from the Bible it is possible to do so. So we are not worshiping three gods, but we are worshiping one God. Another, a third misunderstanding, is that Jesus is not God. The Father is God, but Jesus is not God. And along with that, that the Holy Spirit is not God. Meaning, Jesus does not have a divine nature, no deity, And the Holy Spirit does not have a divine nature, no deity. Some believe that. And they think the Bible teaches that. But the Bible does not teach that. We shall see that the Bible actually does, in fact, use the word God, the true God, in context, the true God, to explain or identify Jesus, the Son and the word God to identify or explain the Holy Spirit. The Bible does so. A fourth misunderstanding is that though the Bible does use the word God in reference to Jesus, he is a lesser God. He's not God Almighty, the true God. He's a lesser God, but not the true God. That is also not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that Jesus is a lesser God because the Bible teaches there's only one true God, right? Only one true God. So if the Bible calls Jesus God, we can't say he's a lesser God because any lesser God is a false God. And why would we call Jesus false or the Bible call Jesus a false God? It doesn't do so. 
Therefore, whenever the Bible calls him God, it means the true God, meaning a true divine nature in, in him, in Christ. Uh, and then fifthly, the last misunderstanding is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are just different titles or different names, different ways to identify Jesus. Jesus, they say, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the Father in the Old Testament. He was the Son when He was on the earth. And now that He's ascended into heaven, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they say, are all Jesus. But we'll see that that is not true either. There is a distinction. Jesus is the Son. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, are the same. But Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is not the Father. The Father is the Father, the Spirit is the Spirit, and the Son is the Son, or Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible actually teaches, not the otherwise, not the contrary. Okay, now, the Bible teaches that there is only one God. Can we confirm that the Bible teaches that there is only one God? Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to him and to love him with all the heart and with all All the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. There is only one Lord, Jesus answered, and this scribe agreed with Jesus and cited the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.35 and 4.39, one of those verses, because those verses say the same, no one else beside him, that that is true. They both recognize. So the God Jesus preached and whatever Jesus believed, he agreed with the scribe that there is only one true God, one deity, only one God. They agreed with that. Further, another example of this fact is Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11. The book of Isaiah the prophet, 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There is only one God, right? There was no God formed, no God created, no God existed before this one and one true and living God, correct? In any point prior, No God was formed. No God was made. No God was created. And there will be none after me. 
in the future, there will be no gods created, no true gods made. We're not talking about false gods. False gods have existed for a long time and they always will exist while the earth remains. But in terms of the true God, God is not formed. No God is formed other than the one God who already exists because he's eternal. He is not formed and he will not be formed, any true God. And this true God is also the Savior. See that in verse 11? The true God, I even I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. The one God is also the one and only Savior. Therefore, Old Testament, New Testament, whether an an unbelieving scribe who has elements of the truth that he believes or Christ who's debating him and answering him, they are all in agreement that from Genesis to Revelation, there is only one true God. Right? So one God. Then, how is this one God explained? How is this one God revealed? How should we understand the terms that the Bible uses, such as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? For example, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. In this prayer, closing prayer, which is called a benediction, a benediction, a good word or a prayer that the people might be blessed. In this benediction, this prayer that the apostle prays for the Corinthians, look at what he says. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Look at what he's saying here in this prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. In the prayer, he's not talking about the grace of one human to another. When we express grace toward one another, whether in speech or in action. He's not talking about one man to another. He's saying the grace, which is a heavenly grace coming from where? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Not the man Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. And who would this be? This would be God the Father. The love descending from heaven for our benefit. The love of God the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those who deny the deity, the divine nature of the Holy Spirit, that He is also God, those who deny that, they say, the Holy Spirit is comparable to the air. He is comparable to the wind. He is comparable to force, like the force of electricity. He is power like that. That's what the Holy Spirit is. So the Holy Spirit is impersonal and the Holy Spirit is inanimate. He has no life. He's not a personal uh, being. He's not a personal anything. He is impersonal. But here... How is it possible for us to have fellowship with something that's not a person? Fellowship. Fellowship is communion, a relationship. We do not have relationship with the air. We do not have a relationship with our breath. We do not have a relationship with the wind. We do not have a relationship with electricity. We have relationship with a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. So he is personal, personal Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, since we're talking about the Son, the Father, and here the Holy Spirit, does not the Holy Spirit exist in heaven and universally? Father, Son, Spirit. 
So we must make sense of 2 Corinthians 13, 14 in terms of the Trinity. In terms of the Trinity. There are various places in Scripture that call attention to the fact that there are three persons, one God. Three persons. And by person, we're not talking about a person like a human person who has a body and spirit. Humans have a body and spirit. But the the Father, God the Father, never had a body, never will have a physical body. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is a person who never had a body, a physical body, a material body, and never will have a material, physical, visible body. Yet he is a person. And this should not surprise us because demons and angels are persons. They are personal. And two of them in the scriptures are named to good angels, Gabriel and Michael. They're named with personal names because they are persons, yet invisible spirits without a physical body. And even Satan is a person and he has a name. He has different names, but the name Satan is a name to identify that one arch enemy, chief enemy of our souls. He is a fallen spirit. He is a demon, the chief of all the demons. Satan, he is a person. So persons, when we say three persons, one God, we're not talking about of necessity that one must have a physical body. So how can you have some of our critics and and, and the heretics say, you people believe in a three-headed monster, a three-headed God. But that assumes we have, or, or the Bible is talking about, physicality, physicalness. We're not talking about a material, physical, tangible, fleshly body. We're not talking about that when we're speaking of the supernatural, God himself, or even angels, whether good angels or fallen angels. There is no necessity when we use the word person to join that with the word body. Not when we're talking about God. So, oh, and by the way, Christ Jesus, he, before his incarnation, did not have a physical body. He was also spirit and only Spirit in deity, just as the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was only Spirit. He is currently also with that same Spirit because God does not change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6, God doesn't change. Or even Isaiah 43.10, Before me there was no God for him, and there shall be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. That is a fact of Jesus' own deity, his own divine nature. But in his humanity, he did obtain and retain a human body. During his incarnation, and even now, he has a human body in heaven. 1 Timothy 2.5, he's called the man Christ Jesus, which applies to his condition now And when he returns, we shall see him in his physical body. He is the one in the Trinity that we can visibly see, which relates to our passage in John 14. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So when Jesus is revealed, then we see God in the sense that we have a tangible presence of God that is visible to the human eye. But not the Father, and not even Jesus the Son in His deity, we would not see Him that way, nor the Holy Spirit, unless they choose to manifest themselves in some visible form. Otherwise, in their usual, typical existence, they are unseen or invisible. Why so? Hebrews 11.6 says, faith, um, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to him must believe that he is 
he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him. That means we must believe he exists. He is because he's invisible. And how do we know he's invisible? Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Moses pursued God by faith, Christ by faith, as seeing him who is unseen. Hebrews eleven twenty seven, as seeing him who is unseen, the unseen God, or First Timothy one seventeen calls God the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 says, the invisible God. God in his typical existence is invisible, unseen, because he is spirit. Spirits do not have flesh and bones. Luke 24.36-39, spirits do not have flesh and bones. They are intangible, they are invisible. Unless Temporarily, they manifest themselves in a certain form to reveal themselves to us. But in their typical existence, they are invisible, intangible, as spirits. God is spirit, John 4, 24. Okay, having established those truths, let's also once more confirm that the Scripture does use the word God as applied to Christ and also to the Holy Spirit, and then make our way to John 14, verse 8. Firstly, that the Bible does use the word God in reference to Christ. If you still have your Bible open to the book of John, let's look at John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word God is used here. And who is this Word? It says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word in this context, and some of your Bibles will capitalize the W to show that it's referring to Jesus Christ. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. When the world was created, the Word already existed before the world was created. Why? Because He's eternal. When the world was created, time began. But before time began, there was only eternity. And the Word existed in the beginning of the creation of the world. Because He created the world according to verse 3. Verse 3 says, all things came into being by him. By the him is, the him here is the word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, this word was with God and was God. With God, Father and Spirit, and was God. Because he possessed deity too. He was with God and was God. The original language and the English language are using the same word to describe not only God the Father, but also the Son, right here in John chapter 1, verse 1. There are several examples in the book of John. Let's look at one more. John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and verse 28. John 20, 28. In this narrative, at one appearance, Thomas was, was not present at the resurrection. So since he wasn't present, he's still skeptical of the resurrection of Christ. So Christ now appears to him. We pick it up. Let, let's actually pick it up at verse 26. 26. John 20, 26 to 29. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, 
and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thomas now openly says, My Lord and my God. Lord and God. Not only the true Lord and God, but also his personal Lord and God. And when he did it, he wasn't saying it in shock, in surprise. He wasn't saying it as an exclamation or saying it by taking God's name in vain. Some cultists, heretics say, he's just saying it in shock as an exclamation. He would be taking it in vain if that were the case. But that's not the case. He's saying it as an element, as an aspect, demonstrating his faith. He's not saying or speaking God's name in vain here. And Jesus confirms that it's not in vain in verse 29. Because Jesus does not condemn Thomas and say, Thomas, you took the Lord's name in vain. He doesn't condemn him, criticize him. He commends him for believing. Though he should have believed without seeing Christ, he still commends him for believing, not for taking his name in vain. So the Bible does use the word God and apply it to Christ. So either Christ is the true God or he's a false God because there's only one true God. All other gods are false gods. The Holy Spirit. Does the Bible apply the word God to the Holy Spirit? Yes. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Specifically, verses 3 and 4. The book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Here is where Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter. And this is what Peter does when he confronts the lie. Chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You have not lied to men, but to God. But earlier he said he lied to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit possesses the deity that God possesses. So he is God. That's why he says you lied to God. He didn't lie to electricity. He didn't lie to force. He did not lie to power. He did not lie to the wind, to the air, to the breath we breathe. He lied to deity, to God, when he lied to the Holy Spirit. So the the scriptures do teach Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. This should have been known and evident to Philip. Let's return to John 14, verse 8. It should have been known to Philip, one of the twelve apostles. It should have been known to him based on the Old Testament and the New Testament. Based on the Old Testament and the ministry of Christ to date. It should have been known to him that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to demonstrate, to manifest, to reveal, to explain God the Father. Because otherwise, no one could know God the Father. No one could be saved by knowing the true God. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the way Jesus prayed. The way of eternal life, the only way of eternal life is to know the only true God, and he's praying to the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we don't know God the Father and Jesus Christ 
and their proper relationship, there's no eternal life. Absolutely no eternal life. John 17, 3. Let's see how Jesus confronts the very fact that this doctrine of the Trinity, Philip should have already known. Okay? Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us the Father and it is enough for us. We'll be content. Yes, in the previous passage, you have said that you are the way to the Father, but right now we want to see the Father and then we'll be content and everything will be fine and happy, peaceful, and our faith will be strong and durable if you show us the Father. Jesus answered, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He had been with him so long, three and a half years, from the beginning to the end of Jesus' public ministry, three and a half years, and not just three and a half years, meeting once a week for an hour to hear from the master and the teacher No, they lived together and they went places together. They were with each other 24-7 for three and a half years. That's why he says here, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Why Why has it been so long and you haven't come to know me? You should not even ask this question. Yes, we'll see. Philip had faith. He did believe in these doctrines, but it wasn't so strong and clear in his mind that it prevented him from asking the question or from making the request, show us the Father and it is enough for us. That's the problem here, that Philip should have known, but he did not know and he needed to have stronger, certain faith. So he explains, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What did Jesus mean by this? First, what did he not mean? He did not mean, he who has seen me has seen the Father means, equals, Philip, I am God the Father. I am God the Father. He did not mean that. Heretics, cultists have said, Jesus said and meant, he who has seen me has seen the Father, equals that Jesus is the Father. Jesus is not the Father. That's not what he means here. He could not be meaning that based on the numerous statements, the numerous discourses throughout the book of John and throughout Scripture. We just saw in summary earlier in the introduction that there is no way Jesus meant that he is God the Father. There's no way he meant that. Neither in his deity nor in his humanity or any other misunderstanding. He did not mean that at all. What did he therefore mean? He meant that if you have seen me, you have sufficient and reliable accurate, truthful knowledge of the Father that should suffice for your salvation, should suffice for your faith. Because otherwise, you will not be able to see or know the Father. It's only found in Him. That's what He meant. Therefore, how do you say, show us the Father? How do you say that? Why in the world would you say that Because you would know that it is solely, entirely, completely in me, in me, the Son, to reveal the Father. So there would be no way, no necessity, no desire should you have to say, show us the Father. It's impossible to see the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you not believe? Don't you believe? Don't you realize that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. 
There is no way to separate us. We are in one another in such a bound way. There is no way to unbind us. We are in one another in deity in such a way that there is no way to separate us whatsoever. No way. That, that's the kind of unity of essence, unity of being, unity of existence we have, and therefore the characteristics that emanate from that which we reveal to you. We are so bound up together. I am in the Father and the Father is in me in such a way that it's impossible for it to be any other way. That is the true existence of God. And why don't you believe it? In a way, he does believe it, but he needs to grow in his faith in believing it. Then he gives two ways, two proofs, two manifestations or demonstrations of why Philip should believe. Verse 10, verse 10 and the first part of verse 11, the words of Christ, the words of Christ. And then secondly, in 11 part B, the works of Christ, the words of Christ, what he preached and his works, his miracles, his supernatural feats, the works. First, he says, the words that I say to you, verse 10, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So you should understand, you should have understood, I've already said it numerous times, that whatever I am saying, I don't say on my own initiative as though my will, as though my purpose, as though my existence, as though who I am and what my purpose is in the world is different from the Father. I actually am commissioned by the Father to explain the Father. I am commissioned by the Father to explain the Father. So whatever I have said is actually coming from God the Father. And the Father abiding in me does his works as he says in verse 11. So then he says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Why? Because I declared it to you. I have already said it to you sufficient number of times that you should believe me. Why in the world would you not believe what I have said to you? You've seen the things I've said and the things I've done all this time. And then verse 10, second part of 10 and second part of 11, the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe on account of the works themselves. If what I say is hard, if what I say is hard, why is it that you can't see the miracles and say, this has to be from God? It has to be from God. Why can't you say that? Why don't you believe that? That whatever I have done and whoever I have healed, that that has to come from God the Father. It cannot come from a mere man. It cannot come from a simple man. It cannot come from Satan. It does not come from his demons. It has to come from a supernatural being it has to come from the Father working through me. That's how it happens. Believe for that reason. Believe because the miracles are so stunning, should jolt you so much, amaze you so much, that all you could do is look up to heaven and praise God and thank God that He revealed Himself in this way. Therefore, the reliability of what He says. So what Jesus says and what Jesus does are in harmony. What Jesus uh, preached and what Jesus performed go together. Okay, let's go now to some other scriptures. When Philip says, show us the Father and it is enough, that he should not, he should not have had that desire 
stated desire. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We start at 1.14. John 1.14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He teaches us here that the Word became flesh. So Philip, we've already told you the glory of the Father is seen in the Son. If you wanted to see grace, the grace of the Father, it would be seen in the Son. If you wanted to see the truth of the Father, it would be seen in the Son. If you wanted to see the existence or pre-existence, the eternal nature of the Father, even John the Baptist in verse 15 preached that. John the Baptist preached that he, Christ, existed before me, John the Baptist. And John does not mean as a human, because John was six months older than Christ, as a human, he meant, John the Baptist meant, in deity, in his divine nature, he existed before me. That's why he's greater than me. Do you want to see the fullness of the Father? you want to see grace upon grace? you want to see grace and truth realized? Then it's in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Also, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. At any time. Old Testament, New Testament. No man has seen God the Father at any time. But if God the Father is explained, if He is revealed, how is He? He has explained Him. The Son has explained the Father. If we want to know the Father, the only way is if the Son explains the Father. Which doctrine is summarized here in chapter 1, but it is repeated in a nutshell throughout John. John chapter 5. Turn to John 5. John 5, 37. John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. John 6, 46, 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father. John 12, John 12. Even recently, Philip was told the following. John 12 and verse 45. John 12, 45. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. He who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. Our passage, John 14, is another instance of it. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And this is a doctrine that is throughout Scripture, not only in the book of John, but throughout Scripture. Philip had plenty of opportunities to hear Jesus say it and believe it. He did to some extent, but not fully. Also, would it not have been a bit arrogant, a bit presumptuous for Philip to say this? based on the Old Testament? Since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, they were expelled from the Garden and from the presence of the Lord. In Genesis 3, 22-24, they were expelled from the Garden, never to return to the Garden of Eden again, because there were flashing swords to threaten them ominous, destructive, flashing swords to threaten them to ever 
try to re-enter the garden, the swords of angels, to prevent them from doing so. So they were expelled from the presence of the Lord, and they should have known that it's no easy task, it's no simple matter to enter the presence of the Lord. In fact, Jacob, Jacob, the holy patriarch of the people of Israel, Genesis 32, 30, when he wrestled with the Lord, who temporarily manifested himself in human form, Genesis 32, 30, Jacob, the patriarch, is amazed. He is amazed. Genesis 32, 30, he's amazed that he's still alive. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He knew that he should have died because he saw God. But God in his mercy did not kill him instantly in his presence. Remember when Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord in a vision. He didn't see the Lord on the earth and face to face in any physical way like Jacob did. But Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 6, he is afraid. He's afraid that he's going to be ruined, destroyed. Why? Isaiah 6, verse 5, when he saw the Lord in a vision, and this happens to also be the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 6, verse 5, he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why would he say that he's ruined? Because he is a filthy man, and he lives among filthy people, For his eyes have seen, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew he did not deserve to see the Lord. And in fact, that he was ruined unless God chose mercifully to let him live, which he did in the next verses, in the next paragraph. He let him live and let him preach the gospel. So, for these reasons, Philip was out of place to say, show us the Father. Out of place (coughs) to say so. Furthermore, we've also said that Philip had to grow in faith. We've mentioned this throughout the book of John. And in fact, the scriptures teach that we increase in faith. No one has 100% Perfect faith, a full measure of faith, the moment of his conversion. He has enough faith to be converted, but he grows in faith. We have seen that throughout the book of John. We, we saw that even Martha and Mary were growing in faith because they already believed in resurrection, but they were going to grow in faith when they saw their own brother Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus said so in John 11 and verse 15. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. They already did believe. She says so in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. But he was going to increase their faith. We grow from faith to faith. Romans 1, 17. We grow from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So this is what Jesus is doing to Philip and the disciples listening to this, and even to us. We might believe somewhat, but it is necessary for us not to ask foolish and dangerous questions, lest we be rebuked, like here. It is good for us not to ask these foolish and dangerous questions lest we be rebuked, confronted by the Lord for having insufficient faith. Instead, we should keep our head low. We should pray humbly and ask the Lord to open our eyes, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. 
Psalm 119 and verse 18. We should pray that our eyes are opened and that we grow in faith and not seek to know with a a dangerous curiosity things that the Bible has said we should not know or we cannot know because God chooses to contain it within himself, not to reveal all things to us, but whatever he has revealed, that we are able to believe and obey. Then, lastly, these next two points on the words of Christ, verse 10, the words of Christ in verse 10. Didn't he say earlier, many times, we'll see one example, in 1244, John 1244, didn't he say many, many times, and even in 1244 to 50, he says it more than once, that whatever I'm saying is from the Father. Whatever I'm saying is from the Father. John 1244, and Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Whatever Jesus says, is from the Father. That should be sufficient for us too. Also, the works of Christ, when he says that you should believe on account of the works. We'll see from John 10 that even his critics, even his murderous critics, had to confess that whatever he's been doing miraculously is not the problem. So the comparison would be if his unbelieving, murderous enemies say, oh no, we're not blaming you for your miracles. We're not blaming you for that. If they're saying that, shouldn't we who believe look at his miracles and rejoice and look at his miracles and say, this reflects Jesus' uh, characteristics, but the Father's characteristics through Jesus, his son. John 10. John 10, when they come, when they come to pick a fight with him, John 10, 25, Jesus says, they say that you haven't said clearly, plainly that you are the Christ, which is false. But verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these bear witness of me. The works The miracles I perform in my Father's name, these bear witness of me that I am telling you the truth from the Father. The works, the miracles. So then, after he claims his deity and ability to grant eternal life to us, they are greatly offended by that. So that, verse 31. Let's pick it up at verse 31. John 10, 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, the deity of Christ that they refused to believe? They refused to believe in the deity of Christ But now here, they confess they cannot condemn him for his good works because his miracles helped numerous people, made their life better. Jesus answered them, 
Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and has and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Can't you, since you say already that the works are good works, that they have to be from the Father, why can't you even grant that, go in that direction, and then believe or begin to believe in my words because of my works which come from the Father? Why can't you do that? Why won't you do that? And of course, they don't do that, verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. But how about us? Shall we seek to know the one true and only God through Jesus Christ? And may that be content, our contentment, for the salvation of our souls and for all eternity. Let's do that. Believe his words, believe his works, to know God the Father. This is the only way of eternal life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.